0: Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venue Land, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry.
1: I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them.
0: Heading up to Northeast Ohio today, birthplace of rock and roll, right? Uh, With SVP Marketing Sponsorship Sales for Live Nation, Barry Gable. Barry, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, Dave. Hey, Paul.
2: I'm honored that you called me and asked me to participate in the podcast. We should
0: have a lot of fun, I hope. Absolutely. First question for you. Right now, in 2021, what, what do you miss most about the live music industry? Well, it's pretty
2: obvious, you know, you can do all the streaming concerts you want in the world, but nothing beats live. I actually think that's on my signature tile when I sign off on any of my emails. Nothing beats live. It's what got me into this business, you know, watching Ed Sullivan and seeing the Beatles and grabbing a guitar. And then years later, seeing Bruce Springsteen play live. It just was what I wanted to do, be at concerts and actually not have to pay
0: for them. (laughs) (laughs) That's the dream, right? Summed up my whole life right there. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) We were talking with, you know, Dave Brooks at at Billboard. And, you know, he's like, what is it that you guys love so much about this industry? And and I think you just nailed it, right? Is because inside of us, there's all that uh, 16-year-old kid who just still enjoys going to a, a great concert and, as you mentioned, not paying for it.
2: Well, the community is just amazing. I mean, you know, we all know that when we were younger, we used to go to those shows and just the community of hanging out with your friends and waiting for the hit song, waiting for the lights to come down, the energy from the audience, the energy from the band, the fact that you have been waiting for months for the show and damn, it's cut off, you know? So all of that stuff, being with, you know, music about being with the community is just for me, is just so important that I miss that camaraderie. There's no question I miss the people I work with and miss the people that I work with around the country, people like yourselves who I'm used to going to their venues when I do shows and see you in the hallway and hang out with bands. But you know, primarily I got involved in this business because I loved buying records and wanted to go to concerts. All the other stuff I did in my training was a blessing to be able to work with, you know, the people I get to work with. But at the end of the day, man, it's nothing like being at a live concert for me. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be 80,000 seats. It could be 300. It could be, you know, 30,000. It's really about the energy.
1: Yeah, that energy, too, is so visceral, too. And that's something that even more recently I was looking back through my phone to find some, I don't know, photos from like two or three years ago. And I stumbled onto these videos I shot at some concert in the arena. And the thing that really stood out to me is obviously... Hearing the music you love is great. Hearing artists that you love and admire is awesome. But that energy you get from the crowd, you just can't get that from streaming. And when you see that the crowd is like singing all along in unison, and they're all like, I mean, like you said, it can be an intimate club or it can be 18,000 seats in an arena. And it is just, you just cannot replicate that in any other way. So, I mean, gosh, you know, that's definitely the thing that I long to get back to.
0: Barry, one of the things that that you mentioned, obviously, is the people. And so let's dive in there for just a moment, because one of the things that those of us who have had the chance to work with you know is that some of the folks that work with you are just so loyal to you. There is such a a love. Tracy Hedrick here, for example, that works with me here in Columbus, You know, she will tout your your knowledge as a mentor of, of taking people under their wing. And, and you've done that for so many people over the years of, of bringing people in. What is it uh, that you love about the people you work with, and, and why do you think that they are so carrying the, the Barry Gable uh, fandom and jumping on that bandwagon?
2: Well, again, that's very kind of you, but I've always come from the world, I know it sounds trite, but Mike Belkin used to say, there's no I in the word team. And I always feel that you're only as good as the way you collaborate, quite honestly, because I feel like I'm confident and I feel like I'm good at what I do, but I'm telling you the person that sits next to me or the person on the other line or the person that I'm dealing with on a computer they got so much more to bring to the table than I might even, even think about. And if you don't embrace that, and if you are fearful of who's gonna do something better than you, then you're in the wrong business because our company is founded on collaboration as far as I'm concerned. And you know, being able to actually say, you know, there's a Tracy Hedrick out there, there's an Andy Dirth, there's, you know, people all over the country that I actually have worked with over the last 40 years that are instrumental not only in bringing music behind the stage, on stage, in front of the stage. I've made incredible relationships with a lot of these people that actually have made a difference in the entertainment community. And I always, always feel that that's the most important thing that I get out of besides being at a live show is seeing people succeed because when they succeed, you know, I succeed, the band succeeds, the act succeeds, the venue succeeds. Everybody Amen. works yeah. to make. It's so hard. You I mean, to get somebody to put their hand in their pocket and spend money on something is amazing. And it's great when you have that collaboration
0: that works. When you talk about collaboration that works, obviously your role has changed. And, and we're going to talk about those early days. I would definitely want to get into that. But right now, as, a, as of this moment, what is your role with Live Nation? Uh, well, it depends on the day. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> and and we're all gathering up the time period that it's almost a, a, a freaking year that we've yeah. been doing this since March 13th. So um, because I wear a number of different hats, which makes my job, quite honestly, I love it, makes it exciting that way, that I'm not just doing the marketing of a show or selling a sponsorship. But quite honestly, the first thing was trying over the last couple of months, it's been talking to my radio and media partners. Where are we going? What are we doing? Been talking to our sponsors. Where are we going? What are we doing? Hey, we're not going anywhere. We'll be back whenever we come back. So we've been working on either renewing or amending contracts that we've had with those clients and moving them into 2021. And quite honestly, not only myself, but our company has just done an incredible job keeping those lines of communication open with those people. And a lot of them have moved into agreeing to have their deals moved to the following this year right now. So. That's about what we've been doing. You know, in the nitty gritty part, back in June and July, I worked year round with a band called Trans Siberian Orchestra, as you guys probably know. I
0: can't believe we got this many minutes in without you mentioning TSO. (laughs) (laughs) Cue the pyro. There's pyro shooting up
2: behind us. I know. Uh, And in fact, right behind me, as you can see, is Paul O'Neill right there. There you go. Got the poster. you know, they didn't know what they were doing, Nightcastle like Castle Management, Adam and, and Kenny and Elliot, they were trying to figure out what's going to happen. So, you know, we worked last year for a good part of it to try to figure out every month, what are we doing? And ultimately, they wound up doing an incredible live stream. And whatever Michael Belkin, uh, Kelly Strickland, or Aaron Schuda, or Hallie Yavich or uh, anybody that I work with around the country needed, I was always there. At least I tried to be. So I wish I can tell you that I um, was doing something that was monumental. But most of the stuff was shifting, pivoting,
0: and moving. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of been the theme of the past twelve months for sure. Yeah, and, you know, as, as we as we shift, pivot, and you know, move into the the future of the concert industry, and and I'm on calls, as I'm sure you are now, where we're we're taking holds for 21, 22, 23. Today, we're just for 2024, right, where people are just, everybody's so excited to get some, get some dates on the books. But, you know, one of the things I hear from uh, just the fans, the people that are not in this industry is, you know, what does this mean for the future of concerts? Are productions going to be smaller? Are ticket prices going to be astronomical? Or, or what, what do you see as, you know, the, the key to success as, as we move forward once we get back to being able to have big events? That is a great question. And I think
2: the jury is still out on a lot of that stuff. I I think that whatever we're talking about right now might change in another three months. But, you know, some people are talking about, well, I know for sure regions are going to come back before like a 50 city tour. It's pretty obvious, you know, for a band to say to themselves, let's get on a bus and let's do a 50-city tour. Well, you're dealing with municipalities that have different protocols. You're, right. it's, there's a lot going on that doesn't necessarily equate from Cleveland to Columbus to Indy to St. Louis, and the jury is still out on that. I think, I think, I hope that prices remain the same. I think if they wind up doing um, less capacities, and you have to go out and do only a 3 to 5000 seat show in a 10000 seat venue i would hate to feel that you had to go to a 100 to a 200 dollar ticket because of that i think that the economics just would be awful if you had to do it that way i think there'll be a lot more local production than national production and i think that everybody the band the management the venue and the promoter will probably have to all chip in and and sort of be involved in the expenses. You know, a lot of the deals, whether they're at 90, 10, 95, 5, whatever, it's all on the artist. Well, is it really fair for the artist to have to pick up if they have to go on tour with normally they'll have maybe 10 buses for eight people on a bus? Well, what happens if now they can only have four people on a bus or five right. people on the bus? Right. What happens if they have to carry five protocol managers? What happens if there's all these extra red zone protocol locations within your venue that, you know, have to have so many people that are in that location. Uh, what happens if you are opening your venue for only two or 3000 people, but it's still costing you 75% of your expenses to run that, even though you have less people. Yeah. So the the economics right now are so upside down that I think I'm hoping that smartness prevails and everybody sort of takes a deep breath when it comes to what these expenses are and who's going to have to, you know, be in charge of those and who's going to have to bear the brunt of them. It it shouldn't just be the artist, but it shouldn't just be the promoter in the building.
0: We've got to figure that one out. Yeah, there's so much to figure out, which is, you know, kind of exciting in a way, because there's so many things that we just did because... That's the way we've always done. them, And I mean, we as an industry, right, that, that we just get into habits and this is kind of forced us all to kind of take a step back. Well, let, let's take a step back to something you you mentioned just a moment ago. Let's uh, address Trans-Siberian Orchestra, because in addition to kind of what you've done with Live Nation, this is a, a band that you champion as much as anyone has ever championed any band right? And, and uh, <laughs> I've worked uh, on TSO since the mid-90s when we uh, saw them go from a kind of a theater act uh, or a smaller venue act to an arena, then to a multiple arena night where it has become this juggernaut, right? This, this holiday tradition, I call it like the rock nutcracker because families go every year. But Barry, talk to me about, first of all, for somebody who's, who's listening, who's not familiar with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, kind of give us a little bit there, and then tell us how, how you got involved with this group and, and how things are going. I, I love to say what Paul used to
2: say, Paul O'Neill, who was the creator of TSO. It's Pink Floyd meets Andrew Lloyd Webber meets The Who. Um, it, <laughs> That's great. You just fog it up, blow it up. It's always bigger and better every year. It's it's very interesting project. TSO had their first album back in 1995, I believe, Christmas Eve and Other Stories, and didn't really tour. Um, there were three radio programmers that started playing Christmas Eve and Other Stories around the country, Mason Dixon, uh, Bill Lewis up here in Cleveland, and another j- disc jockey that I can't remember quite off at the top of my head out of New York. And when they would play the song Christmas Eve, uh, Sarajevo 1224, it lit up the phones. It was nothing like it. And a couple of years after that, Jules... Belkin, my boss and mentor since 1979, got a call from their manager at the time, a guy named David Krebs. And uh, people that are in the business that know David, David Handel Aerosmith, ACDC, was been involved in the music business with Lieber Krebs for many, many years. Was in the mailroom at William Morris with David Geffen in the old days too. But David called Jules and said, I'm working on this project. It's getting a lot of phones. Band is called Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Will you um, take a listen to the record? And we're, we're finally, we're getting a lot of pull from the radio folks in Cleveland that they want us to come out and do a show. And we've never really even done a show. We're just a studio band at the time. Keep in mind, this band was a group of metal musicians, progressive rock musicians that were made up of a band called Sabotage. And they were Fairly well-known in Europe, but not necessarily landmark names in America. So we, so long story short, in 1999, we did the first show with them. They did, they did seven dates around the country. And Belkin Productions at the time did five of those dates. I remember Jules saying, well, call up Larry Maggot and call up Jam or call up uh, whoever and see if they'll be partners with us. And to a person, they all said, "Go fuck yourself." We're not going to do it. <laughs> we had to convince a lot of people to do it, and we—it um, was amazing. So we, we put the show on sale in Cleveland. I work with their at that time their marketing guy Adam Lynn, who uh, and Kenny Kaplan, who have become dear friends of mine for like 25 years now, and and Adam and Kenny currently manage the project, and. Without really knowing what was going on, we put one show on sale at the Cleveland at Playhouse at State Theater, uh, Cleveland Playhouse, and the show sold out. I'm not kidding you, this is not hype. It sold out in a half hour, 3,000 tickets. So quickly got on the phone, tried to book another date with Playhouse Square and it wasn't available. We went to Music Hall. So literally two days later, we had to load out that show, do the other show, put that on sale, we said, ah, we'll do it. Sold that show out immediately. Dang. Came back and decided to do a third show. And we went back to Playhouse Square. So here we were in the same town that had three load-ins, three loadouts. You're trying to, you're trying to make it really easy on yourself, sounds yeah. like. And from that point on, every one of the dates we did, except at that time, Chicago, all the shows sold out, did great, played the Tower Theater, a couple other, I can't remember all the different cities that or the venues. But all the shows did great and just started this 21-year relationship that I have with the band. And every time I said to Adam, Kenny, and Paul, what about trying this? They said, Let's do it. You know, we all worked very hard on branding the, we just didn't know what we were doing. I mean, to see that band play their first show and to see in the audience, I love hearing, you know, Al Petrelli talk about it because he saw it firsthand on stage. You'd see the people there that thought they were going to see the Rockettes. And then you saw the Sabotage fans (laughs) and you saw the parents with their kids, you know, thinking that they were going to see just a regular holiday show. And, um, you know, at that time they had the fog machine and lights and the fog, you know, the fog machine would, the first five rows would be covered in smoke. Right. You know, (laughs) trying to figure out where the band was on stage. And we had no idea. At the end of the two hour show, it was amazing the response from the audience. And they hit on an incredible, an incredible kind of show that brought hope, narrate. I mean, who is doing a show with narration in it and bringing rock and jazz and classical music and blues and metal all in one show that had tremendous lights and every performer? was amazing and they would bring in local strings they tied in local charities they did all the right things from day one and I just was you know lucky to be involved in it and when I saw the first show I was hooked it just to see what we've what they've accomplished you know 106 shows over a million tickets annually 65 million dollar gross they leave 13 million dollars. Uh, They've left on local charities across the country that do good for food banks, Toys for Tots, Salvation Army. I can
0: go on and on and talk about how great that project is. One of my favorite things about TSO is that, you know, because the lights and the spectacle is right, is kind of how I was introduced to the band. But then, you know, as a, as a marketing guy for a venue, was with the band, the local radio station, right? The local radio and involving them in that show. And the band comes in, no frills, right? Just an acoustic guitar and like four, four or five members of the band. And they did an acoustic set at the radio station, even with everything removed I remember it's still one of the best live performances I've seen, just this little, just hanging out, jamming in a radio station studio. And there's just so much talent there in what what these guys do. And you
2: hit it on the head and it it all boils down to the song, the feeling, what they are emoting, uh, you know, a show about hope, faith, and the betterment of mankind. And knowing that there is good in people, you know, like, Paul would say in one of the songs, if we could all make this Christmas thing work all year long, we'd be a better world to begin with. Hey, listen, I don't want to sound like a, you know, a hapless, hopeless hippie, but what they, <laughs> what they um, hit upon was an incredible, uh, and the music is fabulous. The words are great, but you said it right, Dave. The performers are top notch, you know, people may not know who they are at the end of the day because they deliver the material, and it's not necessary. It's a TSO. It's not like, you know, Roger Daltrey. And it's not right. like the name of a right. band, name of all the performers and the performers in the band. They buy into that. They buy into what the show's all about and they deliver a great, like you said, whether it's in the studio or on the stage in front of 18,000, some amazing
1: material and amazing talent bringing it they're always so nice and modest to work with, you know, like working with other acts, whenever we have them come through the building, it can sometimes be challenging, or there's different egos involved. And every year, there's, you know, they're giving back to the local children's hospital, they have kids there, they're you know connecting with the families you know all the people that are involved in these check presentations i mean they're just the nicest most down to earth people and so smooth and easy to work with i mean you just really couldn't ask for anything better on that side right and it's genuine it's very genuine and that's you know at the end of the, at the end of the day
2: audiences Radio stations, they all see that, and that's why they annually, it becomes an annuity for a lot of these radio stations across the country. They look forward to TSO coming in. They look forward to bringing their local charities involved. It becomes like, um, you know, the Christmas holiday and Thanksgiving where you see
0: your family members every year, year after year. Yeah. Really, really a comforting show. As a, you know, as a radio guy, I know how much emphasis used to put into local radio. And them championing the concerts, especially you know with TSO and finding those radio partners. Do you still have that strong belief in in radio being so important to the success of the live music industry, and what it what is about radio that makes it feel that way for you?
2: Hey, listen, things have changed. You know when I talk to younger people, the dynamic of of how music is distributed is so different. When you and I were growing up, or at least when I was growing up, you know, I listened to the radio station and the radio station had a 17 share, whether it was the WMCA good guys or, you know, uh, in New York or Kid Leo at WMMS or QFM 96 with Pat and Wags. You know, these people were tastemakers. These people really made the industry. Kids today, they the music sometimes, unfortunately, is very disposable because you don't pay for it and the music unfortunately becomes a marketing tool and not necessarily about careers you know bands will almost give the product away because at the end of the day these days and that's why it's so so just a hurtful situation we're living with with not being able to tour the live industry is really what makes these bands you know the right. the, the song is played on the radio is still important don't get me wrong but you know our company, when we were when growing up, radio is incredibly important. Live Nation and most businesses that are in the concert world right now, there it's a data marketing company. You know, at the end of the day, you push a button, and I could tell Dave Redelberger, and Paul Hooper, who purchased the last five shows in a certain swimming lane of what kind of music they like. I can sort of do affinity marketing and, and just. Talk to them personally and tell them, right. you know what, here's what's coming. You know, I, that's the most important thing. We used to say, Jules Belkin would say to me, walk around the venue and ask people how they heard about the show, how they hear about the show. And those days, it was either radio or what we, the other one, the biggest name was my friend, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. So now my friend is Facebook. My friend is Instagram my friend is Snapchat, my friend is data marketing, you know, and it's not necessarily terrestrial radio, though it is important. I still believe that, you know, if you go into any show thinking that it's a slam dunk, you're going to lose. Everything is important. Radio may not be as important. In the old days, you used to have to place a full page ad in the newspaper. Who the hell reads a newspaper now? It's sad. I like the newspaper. You know, I, I love it. It but it's not necessarily where we are now. So kids just listen to Spotify or they'll share files. You know, those are the tastemakers right now, the people that are like Billie Eilish making music in her living room or bedroom and then pushing it out or
0: Post Malone or 21 Pilots. You know, all those people just know how to do it. Yeah. You mentioned Jules' names a couple of times and let's take you back to 1979. You know, so at 1979, this is a different era of marketing. It's a different era of live music, as you kind of touched on with radio. But was this your entry into working in the live music industry? Uh, it was. I used to be on the other side.
2: Um, after I graduated from University of North Carolina, I worked at the um, on the major attractions committee, doing load-in. I, I got towels. I picked up the band. Whatever. I did whatever. I was just like being around the industry. But my wife originally, she's from here. She's from Cleveland, Ohio. And we met at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We dated apart from one another. And I moved here in September of 79 with no really job. I was playing music down in North Carolina, also, trying to make a living. I was in what I call the monkey business side of music, where the band would play and all the money we made that night went into beer money. Um, And we play again and try to make more beer money, you know. So that's really, that's how my ambition was. When I moved here, I um, didn't know what I was going to be doing. But at the time, my wife was sharing a house with the road manager of a band called the Michael Stanley Band. And our company was managing the Michael Stanley Band. And this is the honest to God true story. I pulled up on a Wednesday and the road manager of the band, Jimmy Soffice, said, Park your car here. I'm gonna take you up to introduce you to Mike Belkin. There's some job open there. <laughs> and I had no idea who Mike Belkin was or Belkin Productions. And it was basically they had just started a ticket club called the Belkin Concert Club, maybe three or four months prior to my my being there. And the guy that was running it was leaving. So I had a 10 minute conversation with Mike. He hired me on a Wednesday. I started on a Monday. My job was to pick up the mail, open the mail, deliver the mail to everybody else, and then run the concert club that had, you know, it was like the precursor to premium seat sales for the sure. concert promoter. And they were one of the first, if not the first to start those kind of ticket clubs. So for the la- next 40 years, that's all I did was um, work in the concert business. And it was very just being in the right place at the right time. And, subsequently learn from the guys that literally started the concert business with a hand, handful of pioneers like Bill Graham and Larry Maggot and Cellar Door, Jack Boyle, Contemporary, Pace. These were the people that literally started the touring business in the in the mid 60s. And I just held on to you know, Mike
0: and Jules and uh, learned from the best people. What was it like announcing a show in 1985? Right. So, you know, it's it's a little different than things are today where we can post about it. There was no email, everything where you. People weren't afraid to pick up the phone and talk to each other. What was that world like?
2: Oh, that was what a great question. And quite honestly, you know, I, I don't want to be the guy that says I miss those days because I love working on shows even now. I, I mean, I just think it's really exciting, very creative. And if you're the if you're the person that says, oh, I remember walking to school five miles, you know, <laughs> do that. You know I, it all it all is part of the process. But literally what you said, you'd work with the agent or the manager, you'd get a game plan. Uh, you literally would write a press release. You would stuff it in an envelope. You would time it to go out, hopefully by a certain time. Um, you might, I don't even know when the fax machine came out, but you would use that. But the, the bottom line was you would be talking to the program director of every radio station within a 50 mile radius of wherever you were playing. You'd be on the phone talking to that, you'd be uh, putting promotions together, you'd be doing ticket promotions with them, liners, you'd be writing the copy for the liners, be calling up TV stations to see if there was an opportunity to get on the news, especially if it was a stadium show with either a Paul McCartney or, you know, with the Stones. You would be rolling up your sleeves to do anything and everything to get the word out about every show old school wise. And everything was about promotion. Quite honestly, the buy on radio or TV, I hesitate to say it's a mercy buy, but if you didn't get at that time 10 to 1 on whatever you were doing, then you weren't a really good marketer. Because at that time, it wasn't really about that 60-second spot, which now has turned into a 15-second spot. It was really about the chatter. It was about you you can't miss this. You have to be at this. And it was, you know, it was the relationship that you had with the radio station at that time that, you know, would take it over the top. They'd be the ones that would be introducing you to the the new music, to the artists. They would get people all excited about, you know, the tickets going on sale at Ticketron and getting in line and making sure you were out there, you You'd call the TV stations and make sure that they knew that hey, the Stones tickets were going on sale starting at 10 o'clock, but people were lining up at 6 a.m. already, or they were lining up the night before, and you would capture that on TV. You would get whatever excitement you could get, and you know that was the beauty of. I'm not saying we don't do that anymore. I think we actually do a good job of that, but we do rely a lot more now on on uh, digital and on uh, email marketing and retargeting, and you know it's. It, it saves a lot of money and it saves a lot of time, but it
0: sometimes you forget about rolling up your sleeves sometimes. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because as, as much as I like, you know, sitting at home and being able to get on right at 10 a.m. to buy the tickets for that show that I'm really excited about, which, you know, we still do occasionally, try it from time to time. But there is there's part of me that obviously with romanticized the camping out for tickets. And you know in that sure. that standing outside uh, a a ticketron or a spot and, and waiting for the doors to open so you could rush up to the ticket counter at the second floor of a JC Penney's. Right. So it's,
2: right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, the, it's so true. You know, I remember doing three shows at Richfield Coliseum with Journey, special guest, Brian Adams. And they were like the hottest freaking band on the planet and to do three shows. It was just amazing. And Sears at the time, they did not want to open their doors to sell the tickets because it was either I think it was during the holiday time and they didn't want to, you know, it was too, too it would have been too crazy for them to deal with it. And so we worked with Herbie Herbert, their manager at the time, to actually sell tickets. We pulled tickets from Ticketron and we got Brinks trucks at all of the area locations where <laughs> Sears were and sold them in, out of the Brinks truck in the parking lot. Amazing. And yeah. we did that on the first day of the sales. It was, it created so much of buzz and it was
1: phenomenal. But you're right, you, you don't do that anymore. Yeah, it's kind of funny because you do have that moment now where. Shows will sell out fast, but it's less of a story unless it's a record, you know, it's mostly like, oh, this one sold out in two hours or this one sold out in four hours, but all the people are at home and there's something like I I remember when I first started working at the arena that you would have these big tours and that was like a story in its own where you would go up to the lobby and you'd have like a ticket lottery and have these massive snaked lines throughout the arena lobby and you'd be drawing the number and everyone you know it's like it was such this opportunity that that was like its own pop-up press event and such electricity around it and you know I I think like Dave said it's so much easier to you know buy tickets at home so it's You know, we're probably just romanticizing the old days, but it is something like that I miss about that, you know? And there's nothing wrong with the way they're doing it now. It's just different, period. Right, exactly.
0: Speaking of different, obviously a a big change going from Belkin Productions to Live Nation. What was that like for you, you know, with the, obviously, you know, part of the same group, but things change over the course of time and it's a different era in the industry. So talk to me about how that impacted you personally and, and professionally. Well,
2: we sold the company in 2001 and it was, you know, we had actually been uh, courted a couple of years before whenever, when it was first started, but the Belkins didn't, weren't interested. But when they finally did sell, you know, initially I was concerned because I liked the mom and pop world, you know, but in typical Barry Gable fashion, I, I, I learned to embrace it pretty quickly. And I say to everybody, you know, it's great that I was able to make a decision by just walking to the two guys around the corner from my desk and say, Hey, I want to do this. And they would say, Okay, just don't lose a lot of money, you know, and they would let they would be engaged and let you do it. I always say what I have learned to say to a lot of people, uh, the best part about live nation is that it's so freaking big. And the worst part about live nation is that it's so freaking big. (laughs) Right. But what I but going back to the collaboration the people that make up our company are some of the best and brightest people at least they were prior to the pandemic and where we had to work with a lot of you know less is more and we had to furlough some some just incredibly talented people across all different aspects of our of the company but i honestly thought it gave me at the time of my career in 2000 starting in 79 this great platform for at least me because i like i said i like being collaborative and i learned i was working with a lot of these people anyway and so now i could pick up the phone and call these people and and have a have them be part of a solution that i might have for a sponsor or a solution that i might have for a promotion why aren't we selling but pittsburgh's doing better or why are we not selling but St. Louis is doing this, or vice versa. And it became, you know, almost for me at least, I don't, again, my inner hippiedom comes out, but it was unconditional love and support for people that I thought were stellar marketers, stellar bookers that I now call part of my extended live nation, or extended Belkin family. Did I miss all of that? The big difference also with Belkin versus this. I would complain to Jules when he would book the Moscow Circus or he'd do motorcycle racing on ice or the Big Apple Circus or the male intellect or, you know, a monster truck pole. You know, I'm going, why aren't we doing like a million Springsteen dates? Why aren't we doing ACDC? And what it what it taught me was exactly what I was saying before you learn how to sell tickets in any genre for anything. One day I'm doing Motley Crue and the same day I'm doing Amy Grant. And there's no difference in in promoting. It's about getting people excited about laying down their money and understanding what their brand is and being true to that brand. I I miss sometimes the chances of doing those Unique things like the male intellect. I miss opening venues by doing the Moscow circus. I love the idea when our company got more involved in Circus Soleil, not only because the budgets were huge, but, <laughs> but they said, yeah, try that. Let's try that. Let's do that. And like I said before, the Belkans were always, you know, we didn't own venues. We made money on one thing, and that was the ticket until you could find other ancillary revenues to make money on. So they were always doing any shows that could fill up an arena. I learned at that time how to sell a show and how to create relationships and how to count on people to help you be successful. So as I was complaining about why aren't we doing all these Springsteen dates, little did I know I was becoming a better marketer because we were doing anything and everything That was entertainment driven, whether it was say goodnight, Gracie or La Faux or Springsteen or one of my favorites is motorcycle racing on ice. To this day, 40 years later, my hearing is uh, still gone in my right ear from those two
0: cycle engines. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Uh, Yes, having promoted uh, both the Moscow Circus and uh, some uh, more than my share of motorcycle events over the years. (laughs) So you know we've talked about it here and there because it's always a a big character in your life. But the city of Cleveland, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? I know this has been a a point of pride for the city, and and you've been involved from the beginning, correct? Yeah. Whether we were behind the scenes on
2: a lot of the, you know, uh, back in 1980 when they started doing the the poll, you know, different cities were trying to buy for where the um, where the rock hall would be, whether it would be in Philadelphia or Seattle or in uh, in San Francisco, Chicago, a lot of the cities were were um, vying for that, but it took the local radio station got behind a WMS and their entire staff. Public-private partnership. Everybody got behind it, whether it was the House of La Rose, which was the local Anheuser-Busch distributor, or Belkin Productions, or the you know the bank at the time uh, and the head of the bank. Whether it was uh, the city of Cleveland, Destination Cleveland, early on, everybody got behind this, thinking that why couldn't it be in Cleveland? Shit, the first concert that was ever done was the Moondog Coronation Ball. Uh, That was done in Cleveland years ago, and um, that was really the flagpole that was put into the ground by Alan Freed, the disc jockey that was here in Cleveland that literally coined the term rock and roll. And so they felt like they had a leg to stand on. And at that time, also in the 70s, per capita, Cleveland was selling more records. That was the thriving time when every label had an office here. And if you didn't break out of Cleveland, then you didn't matter. I mean, bands were breaking out of here that, you know, Springsteen broke out of here. David Bowie did his first American dates in Cleveland. So there was this groundswell of why not Cleveland? And they went up, gave an incredible presentation to Ahmed Erigen and the, at that time, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame board or foundation, and they wound up getting it. And it proved to be an incredible opportunity for the city. And for me, Michael Belkin's on the board, Jules and Mike were on the board from day one. I'm on some of their marketing committees. I work with them year round. It's an incredible institution. And if you anybody around the country ever has a chance to get into Cleveland and go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's, it's the soundtrack of our lives in that building um, and what they yeah, have. truly amazing is is amazing. It's not just the bands that are in there, it's the culture, it's the lifestyle that made us all so excited about being involved in this in this business.
1: Yeah and I watched recently the uh, virtual induction I guess that they did that they put on HBO Max or HBO and although it's of course not the same as seeing these musicians get together often with you know older lineups that were kind of the original crew, it was still just this. God, it really hit me right in the feels at the right time, where I was missing live music, and then I see these presentations on Nine Inch Nails and Depeche Mode, and I'm just like, God, it, it, yeah. It's just the Doobie such brothers a
2: brothers and you know, yeah, our, the Doobie uh, Brothers. And, talking about his relationship with Springsteen and how he got involved. Yeah, in the they're all fans. That's the thing. They were all. Everybody yeah. starts as a fan, you know, and. It's just amazing what's in that building. And if anybody from around the country ever comes to Cleveland, call me. I'll
1: give you a tour there. <laughs> I'm taking you up on it.
0: I was I was there. I got credentialed to cover the grand opening back in uh, what was that, 95? Yep, 95. Uh, and I just and I just took my family there just before uh, the pandemic. I, we actually just took a took a road trip up there because to me, you're absolutely right, Barry. That it is it is a special place that just speaks to our hearts. That is uh, you know unlike any other. Uh, it was like when I went to an art museum and I can kind of appreciate it. Uh, I go, oh, that's that's the Mona Lisa, right? I know that's important. Yeah. But at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you just feel it, right? Because it's something that's been in, in so many of our people that are in this industry, it's just, it's just in our soul.
2: And uh, it still happens I started an event many years ago when we owned a club called the Odeon Concert Club, a uh, 900 seat club. And to keep the lights on in the wintertime, we started a battle of the bands, not unusual. Every town has a battle of the bands competition, but this was with high school kids. And it was a great way for us to find also cheap talent that could play as opening acts or to be on our street team or to, you know, whatever, just be in the community. Uh, 25 years later, we moved the event to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where we've done uh, where these high school kids get a chance to play in the shadows of their gods and goddesses within the industry the parents get a chance to roam the halls of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with their kids. And they, you know, talk about this is the band that I first saw when I was going to so-and-so or whatever it might be. And it was, it's just great to be able to bring those families together under the roof of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and sharing stories and their favorite bands and bringing generations together in that building. And it's great to have that Tri-C High School Rock Off take place there. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to do it recently, but we'll be back up again, hopefully shortly. But
0: that's what's so cool about that building. It brings so many generations together. And Barry, I would say, as we get ready to wrap this up, that you have done the same. You've brought so many generations together to uh, enjoy music, whether it's TSO or so many of the concerts. I feel like we just scratched the surface of of your rock and roll history. And Before we let you go, we're going to hit you up with our fast five. So we got five quick questions for you, uh, just looking forward for your instant response. So first up, your first concert. Uh, By myself or with my family? By yourself. Uh okay,
2: I'm going to give you both because they're hilarious. <laughs> Go um, for it. My first concert that I begged my parents to take me to because I listened to the Rat Pack all my life. That's my my that's my first inclination to music, my folks record albums. And I begged them to take me to see Sammy Davis Jr. at the Westbury Music Fair on Long Island, which is a, like a theater in the round, and the opening act was Don Rickles.
0: Oh.
1: Amazing. Gosh, that's incredible. That's got to be the best one we've heard.
2: Yeah, my first show that I went to with my friends was Madison Square Garden, Grand Funk Railroad.
0: Way to set the bar low, right? I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, uh, Sammy Davis and Grand Funk, that's, that's awesome. How about your favorite concert? Oh, jeez. I know, right? You know,
2: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the nod to you right now, Dave. I have so many of them, whether it was Springsteen and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the opening concert, 1995. I mean, you can't top that. Everybody there.
0: That was a special night.
2: Every, you know, Dylan and Springsteen and, and the Pretenders and Gary Lee Lewis. and uh, It goes on and on and on. It was an incredible night plus whatever. But I'd have to say something that was really special was the opening concert, uh, opening up the Ohio State Stadium with Pink Floyd. It was incredible, incredible night. It was a full moon. It was Michael Belkin's first production on his own that he put together. It was an incredible promotion, 60,000 plus people watching the show. And it just so happens Jules booked the show, needless to say, and he went to University of Michigan. And during Uh the show, during the show, he looks over to me, goes, isn't it great how we're desecrating this field? I wonder how Woody Hayes feels right now. (laughs) So, you know, again, it's not it's not just the show. It's really what the memory is. And backstage at that same show, we were with Steve O'Rourke and the uh, Steve, who's the manager of the band, said to me, hey, the the boys want to get something for Jules really special. What what do you think we could get for him? And we're drinking champagne and we're talking. And the first thing I said to him was more dates.
0: Right. There you go. (laughs) Absolutely. That's the right gift.
2: And sure enough, we got more dates with Pink Floyd after that, uh, when they came back to the United States to do some indoor
0: shows. That's awesome. How about, how about the nicest artist you've ever met? Oh, my goodness.
2: Uh, I, I have to st- you know, there's so many of them that have been real nice. But I have to tell you, seeing firsthand for 20 plus years of working with Paul O'Neill, he may not have been the one on stage, but seeing him, I remember him asking me, without the band, want, he didn't want the manager to know, the road manager, Elliot Salzman. He said to me, I know it's Sunday, but I want to write you a check for $10,000. I want you to get me $100 bills so I can give them out to the people when they come to the show. He would do things that I would never ever see anybody do we I brought him to a PBS station in Cleveland to do the first pledge drive of Trans-Siberian Orchestra and you know I have the bank of phones he gave everybody he paid everybody that night that was working the phones and bought every one of them a membership to WVIZ <laughs> that's great but he would do this all the time giving kids silver dollars and you know he was an amazing 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 personality gone way too early.
0: How about your favorite venue that you haven't worked at? So someplace that you just went to saw a show that you weren't involved with on any angle except for personally, and you love that venue. Oh, wow. But, and that I actually went to? Yeah. But didn't do a show? Well, you know, yeah, it's something that you were just there for, for, for personal uh, pleasure. It would have to be um, Red Rocks.
2: I actually, my wife and I were, my wife and I, that's in Colorado in Morrison, Colorado, home of Morrison, the little Morrison Hotel there, which is cute. But I remember going there, we were actually on a hiking trip and we were going to Denver just so that we could get acclimated to some of the um, the altitude before we went a little bit higher. And it just so happened that uh, Rusted Root was playing there. Yeah, I called up some people and I tried to get there early. And, and it was crazy because the place, is literally in a park and anybody can Alicia when I was there years ago anybody could go there even though there was a show there the high school football team was running steps before the band was doing sound check so that that place but there's so many venues I you know I got a chance to go to Hollywood Bowl which was you know where the Beatles played you know that's just a beautiful venue I would like to get to the Gorge sometime which would be a beautiful venue Got to see shows at the Beacon Theater. So I'm giving you way many more answers. But if I had had to pick one, I also don't want to discount Blossom Music Center, which is just a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful venue that I can't
0: wait to get back to. Amen. Uh, last question for you. Uh, what is the theme song to the show about your life? So in other words, the, it's Barry, right? It's You get your own, your own TV show. Cameras follow you around. The opening credits play. Uh, what is the song that plays over the opening credits? It's too obvious. Joan Jett, I love rock and roll. There you go. Perfect answer. (laughs) Barry, uh, thank you so much for the time today. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you or follow you on social, uh, what's the best ways these days?
2: I don't hide myself. It's Barry Gable on Facebook, and it's spelled G-A-B-E-L. If they want to tag me or find me on Instagram, it's the same thing, Barry Gable. If you want to bike with me on Peloton, it's my initials, beg for more. That's the first Peloton
0: shout-out we've had. I like that.
2: Beg B-E-G-F-O-R more. Beg for more. And I see a lot of a lot of live nation comrades are on Peloton. And you know, if there's one thing that I'm learning to do over the last number of months, not that I didn't do it before, is um, I try to take care of my body. I work out every day, try to you know, take some deep breaths because what we're dealing with right now is just freaking awful. And, um, you know, one thing that we've all learned is no matter how much uncertainty there is, the one thing that you can sort of control is yourself. And hopefully people are listening to themselves, listening to their friends, listening to uh, mentors, listening to people to make your life a little bit more on keel and uh, understand that you can't control anything, that it is all uncertain, but with a little bit of hope and faith, we'll get out from underneath this and uh, you'll be stronger. What What
0: do they say? If it doesn't kill you, you'll be stronger. Just great words. I appreciate you sharing that. I can't wait to have you back in the business. I can't wait for us all to get back and, and run into you backstage at, uh, at some show down the road. So again, really appreciate the time today. Amen.
2: Thank you. Look forward to it. And uh,
0: wherever you are, crank it up. Crank it up, and thank you for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We love your five-star reviews, so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger, and I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone.